Welcome to the Chase Podcast. Dr. Ron Charles is a renowned archaeologist, author, historian, speaker, missionary, and is known as the Christian Indiana Jones. Dr. Charles has spent over 50 years researching and uncovering truths about Jesus Christ and information that proves the historical authenticity of the Bible. Gleaned from his years of tireless research, ministry, and archaeological work as the pages of the Bible come to life like never before. Visit cubitfoundation.org for Dr. Ron's books and information about this global ministry. Hello, I'm Dr. Ron Charles. Welcome to The Chase. We appreciate you tuning in to us. You know, the life of Jesus is so fascinating. It is so great when you find some historical uh, facts, archaeological facts that confirm just how fantastic our Savior is and how phenomenal this uh, Savior was, was not only at the time that he lived on this earth, but is continuing to be today. And one of those things that is quite phenomenal, uh, we have recorded in the book of Luke and the uh, chapter number seven, and we'll be reading verse number 36. Now, many times we have pastors, the evangelists and preachers that quite try to combine three events into one. But this was the first of three events. You have this event, then you have two years later, another one, and then a third that's similar. And this particular one was the first that we call the uh, the woman with the alabaster box. And so we'll uh, explain that as we go. But this was the very first one happened around the time of Hanukkah of, uh, of, uh, the, uh, of the year 29 uh, AD. And then the next one took place, which was the anointing of Jesus's head. And then the last one, just uh, two days before he was crucified, when Jesus's feet were anointed again. Well, let's begin to read number verse number 36 of the seventh chapter of Luke. And one of the Pharisees desired he that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus set it meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man... If he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman that this that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. This was the celebration of what we call today Hanukkah. It's a celebration in which the Maccabee family purified the temple after 
the Syrian emperor had defiled it with offering a pig as the altar, on the altar and so forth. And so they sanctified the temple again, and they, they made it uh, acceptable to be worshipped in again without being defiled. And, and the celebration of that thing is what uh, we call Hanukkah today what they, at that time. And so there was a celebration of the, the Pharisee, uh, Simon the Pharisee, who invited Jesus. This took place in Capernaum. And like I said before, this is the first of three times Jesus was anointed. Uh, the next time was anointing of his head six days before his crucifixion, then two days before anointing of the feet again. We don't know who this woman is. We just recognize her as a sinner. Now, what type of a sinner? We have no idea. You know, the Pharisees at that time, they identified women as sinners on a number of different uh, classifications. Number one, if you're below, if you were above the age of 13 and were not married, you were a sinner. If you were an entertainer, a dancer, or a player of musical instruments at, uh, uh, at different events and so forth, then you were classified as a sinner. Uh, all non-Jews were classified as sinners. And then you have the, uh, the hardline sinners that really are sinners. You know, you would have the, the prostitutes and, and uh, that type of thing that were classified as sinners. But, but uh, the, the statistics show that of the, uh, of the more than, than uh, 2 million people that made up the Galilee region, uh, of which over half of them were uh, women, that 92% would have been classified as sinners by the Pharisees. So when you say that this woman was a sinner, we don't know what classification that means. It means to this Pharisee, to Simon, she was a sinner which could have been anything. But anyway, uh, during this, the celebration, during the feast in which Jesus was invited, this woman came in. Now, the, the way that they operated these feasts, that if you can imagine a, uh, a, uh, a horseshoe, okay? And at the, around the horseshoe, you have uh, couches that were laid out all the way around the horseshoe, and the people would recline on these couches, and they would they would lean on their right hand, on their right uh, hand and arm, and then they would reach out and take food with their left. And so, uh, so on the inside of the horseshoe would be the servers, and they would go from uh, from person to person uh, with their uh, plates of meats or vegetables or fruit or whatever, and the people would take the food and, and serve themselves. And um, then their feet would be sticking out on the, at the end of the uh, uh, of the couch, and uh, and those. Uh, and so most of the conversations took place within the inside of the horseshoe, the inside of the U, where they could talk to one another. Now, this particular woman came in. Uh, apparently, Simon didn't know who she was other than she was a, a sinner. And uh, she came in and had a, 
a, a deep feeling for Jesus. We don't know if, if she had ever met Jesus before. We don't know if she had ever been associated with Jesus or whether she had been healed by him and that she, he had, uh, uh, she had heard some of his teachings or what. We have no idea. Well, we just know the woman came in. And what she had with her was an alabaster box. And this alabaster box was just like this. Now, I got this alabaster box as a present uh, when we were missionaries in uh, Albania. Now, at that time, uh, alabaster was mined in two places. It was mined in Alabastrius, Egypt, and in Illyricum. In Alabastrius, Egypt, uh, that's the alabaster that they used to put on, uh, uh, on wall, uh, wall tiles and, and uh, tiles for the floor and, and so forth. But the, uh, the alabaster that was, that was mined in Illyricum, which is present-day Albania, uh, which still is today, was a, a more uh, soft variety uh, than alabaster. And it was used for statues and for these, which is called the spikenard vessel and is still used for spikenard even today. And what they would do is that the spikenard would be placed inside. As a matter of fact, th these, these particular boxes were used only for spikenard in the Roman Empire. No other oil, no other ointment was, plus, was placed in there. Okay, so what is spikenard? Well, spikenard at the time was the most expensive spice in the world. And today, it is still the most expensive price in the world. You can go to the Chicago Stock Exchange, look at spices, and spikenard today sells for $32,000 an ounce. And the Roman Empire was was basically the same in in their uh, in their value system and in their money at that time was basically the same percentage wise. Spikenard is so precious because it's so hard to collect. There's two different kinds. One spikenard grows on a, a bush that grows up above the 15,000 foot level in Nepal, uh, in the Himalaya mountains. That's usually used for, uh, for incense. So if you've ever burned Indian incense, well, that's spikenard that you're burning. Um, the other is the ointment. And what it is, about every 10 years, there is a flood on the Indus River. And on the uh, west and on the eastern banks of the Indus River, there's a grass that grows there. And so when the Indus River floods, the Indus River is now in uh, now in Pakistan at the Roman in the Roman period, it was uh, it was India. And so when that river floods, then it begins to recede. And when it does recede, the bacteria that is in the water attacks the roots of this grass. And so uh, the roots of the grass then uh, tries to repel the bacteria that is attacking it. And as it does that, then it forms a small little BB type 
uh, gumballs. And the people of the region, they pull the grass and they collect these gumballs and they uh, then melt it and mix it with some other spices and then put them, uh, put the ointment in jars, in alabaster jars like this. And then when the when the lid is put on, it's permanently sealed. It uh, cannot be opened again. And what happens over the years, the the alabaster box is uh, is quite it's porous, and so the the oil, the spikenard oil, actually works its way to the outside. And so, if you want to use the uh, the spikenard ointment, you just take a, a lamb's cloth or a, a, a any type of cloth and you wipe it like that. You wipe the uh, the box and you get the, uh, the fragrance and you get a little bit of the oil on the cloth, then you can use it for whatever that you want to. But you never open it. Never open it. Now, this is so precious and so expensive that only the very, very, very rich would have it, except for one issue. In one situation only, then the common person can have it. And usually that is because this is passed down from generation to generation. So a mother will pass down an alabaster box of ointment to her daughter on her wedding day. And then she will pass it down to her daughter. She will pass it down to her daughter. And sometimes uh, at this time, you, you would have alabaster boxes like this that had been passed down for four and five and six hundred years from one generation to the next and never opened and broken. But there was one time and on one occasion that the box is opened is permanently sealed. And so the only way to get the liquid out is to break the box. And once the box is broken, once the alabaster marble is cracked and broken open, it can never be repaired. It can never be glued back together and never be able to hold spikenard again. And that's at the death of usually a man that's very near and dear to the woman who owns the box. If there's no way for her to express her love for this man, it could be a husband, it can be a brother, a father, a son. If words can't express how much I love this man, then she would take her alabaster box had been passed down for generations. She would break it open and pour the spikenard on the body itself while it's laying there to be buried. And when the fragrance begins to fill the whole room, then everybody there, without her having to say a word, everybody there realizes just how much she really loved this man. This is the box that this woman brought into that dinner that night. And again, we don't know if she knew Jesus or not. Don't know anything about her. Don't know her name. Don't know anything about her occupation or where she's coming from. But we do know that she came in. She knelt 
behind Jesus' couch with his feet sticking out the back. And she began to weep. And as she wept, her tears fell on Jesus' feet. She washed Jesus' feet with those tears and dried his feet with her long hair. And then she took her alabaster box that could never be repaired. It was never broken. And she broke it and anointed Jesus' feet and let the ointment fill the air. Now, if you want to know what spikenard smells like, you just go to the local drugstore and buy some Fabergé Brut. Because Fabergé Brut is what spikenard smells like. But as a, rather than a manufactured chemical, it's the real thing. But this woman, we don't understand the, the depths of the love that she had for Jesus. But it was such that she was willing to take her most prized possession, her most expensive gift, the greatest thing that she could give physically and give it to Jesus without expecting anything in return and never expecting for it to be fixed again. And so they, they knew that this woman was a sinner in their, in their, uh, in their definition of sinner. And they would say, you know, if Jesus was really a godly man, he would know what kind of woman this is, and he would not have anything to do with this, especially he would not let her touch him. But Jesus went beyond that. He saw the heart of the woman that was there. He saw that irrespective of what they thought, that she was there to give honor to Jesus, to give uh, acceptance of him for her. And Jesus did just that. We know that eventually Jesus said, her sins, which are many, are now forgiven. But it all started when this woman gave Jesus the very best she had, all that she had, and she broke it open knowing that it could never be repaired ever again and most likely never replaced. Too expensive. She could have never purchased this thing for what it was, what it was worth. And uh, it just couldn't happen. But Jesus was blasted for it, but he still stuck up for this woman. You know, in the Middle East today, we minister in Egypt Sudan, Libya, Syria, other parts of the Middle East, some of the most difficult and the hardest places in the world. The Lord has given us the opportunity and the privilege of being there to minister and to share Christ. And you know, as we do, there are many people, many women, and many of those that we of the Christian faith in the Western world just don't want to have anything to do with. They're Muslim. But their heart is pliable. And Jesus can melt 
the heart of those that are so hard. You know, we've learned by experience that um, the best the best offense you have against terrorism is to get them saved. When you get them saved, they're no longer terrorists. They are followers of Jesus, and they become great evangelists for the Lord in the midst of their own country. And many of these people, they have literally done what this woman did. They have taken the thing that's most precious to them, their own lives, their own hearts, and they've broke it open to Jesus, even though their neighbors, their friends, their religious leaders, their governmental leaders are calling them crazy, calling them sinners now that you have now that you are a Christian, saying that they are cursed of their God and they're cursed by their people, that they are not worthy to even be alive. But they've taken their most precious thing their lives, and they broke it open, and they poured it out to Jesus with no guarantee that that it will get any better, and with no guarantee that they will not have to suffer death because they poured themselves out to Jesus. But he's taken them. He takes them to himself, and he gives them love. He gives them compassion. And he gives them something they've never experienced before. And that's unconditional love. You know, the Quran mentions love one time. That's when Allah looked on his creation and he loved it. Outside of that, love is never mentioned again. That God is not a God of love, not a God of compassion. He's a God of wrath that must be appeased. But Jesus, when he comes on the scene and he is introduced to these people, so many times they accept just because of love. And just because Jesus says, I love you, not for what you can do for me. I love you not because of the how much you are worth not for what you will do in the future, but I love you just because that you are you. You don't have to get your life straightened out before you come to me. Just come to me, and we'll worry about straightening the life up later. They can't comprehend this. And they willingly, many times, they willingly, even the most desperate of terrorists, that we've had the opportunity to convert. They say, okay. And they break themselves open to Jesus, not knowing what to expect. And he returns that love by allowing this sweet fragrance to go throughout. And they smile and they begin to understand for the first time what love is really all about. They have no guarantee that they'll ever get anything back. They never have a guarantee that they can ever replace anything, that they can ever fix anything. The only thing they know for sure is that Jesus loves them, 
And Jesus has guaranteed them that I'll never leave you or forsake you. I know so many times I've had the I've been received knocks on my door at night, two or three o'clock in the morning, and they drag me away from my place, my flat, and they want me to witness as a witness what is going to happen to these people that accept the Lord. Many times I'm standing there with my friends. Of course, I'm handcuffed. I can't do nothing. And they're there with a knife to their throat. They're there with a gun to their head. And so many times, inevitably, they will ask me, does Jesus still love me? And my answer to them, not only does Jesus love you, but he's with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And he'll love you always. Then it says, the next question usually is this. Is Jesus still here? Is he still with me? I said, not only is he here with you, but he'll, he'll be here with you and for all of eternity. Many of them go on to meet their Savior a few seconds later. But others, they go on to live another day because it's just a scare tactic for many of them. They pull the trigger, but it's a, a bullet does not come out, just a blank. Sometimes they just throw the knife down just as a torment, but other times it's the real thing. But I'm convinced that as they pour themselves out to Jesus and that sweet fragrance of their sacrifice to him fills the whole earth and he's so proud of them. We don't know their names. No one knows their names. They're unnamed like this woman. But yet she gave Jesus everything she had. And so do they. And they're worthy of our concern and our prayers. That's why I want you, if you will, make a commitment today, right now, that you'll pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the persecuted, Muslim by birth, Christian by choice. Pray for them at least five minutes a day. And you'll be blessed, and they'll be blessed. And thank you so much. And may the Lord bless you. The Chase with Dr. Ron Charles is sponsored by supporters of the Cubit Foundation. Visit cubitfoundation.org for Dr. Ron's books and discover how you can support this global ministry.